Continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we now come to Matthew 23, which is a prophetic discourse of Christ against the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is the harshest language he has reserved for the scribes and Pharisees uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be looking at the first 12 verses this morning. This is the reading of God's word. And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbled himself will be exalted. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word. I ask that you would give us insight and understanding now to see the face of Jesus Christ, to see our need to rest upon him by faith alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the uh, third book of C.S. Lewis, Beloved Chronicles of Narnia, is uh, the title, The Voyage of the John Treader. It's my favorite book in the whole series. I think it is for a lot of people. And it has probably one of the best opening lines ever written in a story of fiction. It opens with, There was once a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Uh, He had a horrible name because he was such a horrible boy. Uh, Lewis portrays him as a bully who just enjoyed tormenting his cousins and really anybody, uh, telling them why they're always wrong, why he is always right, what they must do, though he himself was rarely willing to listen to his own advice. And in the story, of course, if you've read it, uh, Eustace ends up being transformed into a dragon on a mysterious isle because of his greed and his pride and the dragonish thoughts in his heart. See, Eustace was full of pride throughout the story. And the idea then is is that pride is like this great dragon within us. It, It turns us into dragons. And indeed, pride lies at the very center of all our sin. In in the scriptures, this is clear even going back to the fall. Uh, Even before the fall, we see Satan boasting of his own power as he seeks to exalt himself above the Most High, above God. And then from that pride, Satan tempts Eve. 
appealing to her pride, claiming that if she would just eat of this fruit of this tree, she too would become like God. And who doesn't want to be a God unto themselves? Pride is so destructive. It perverts our worship so that we stop worshiping God for who He is so that we might worship ourselves. And you can look into the heart of any religion, any gospel that is outside that of Christ, and what you find is there is this heart of pride that ultimately seeks to lift yourself up, your own goodness, your own glory. You know, what you love ultimately determines what you worship. Your devotion dictates the liturgy of your life. And in our text this morning, Jesus gives a very clear warning to us concerning the effects of pride upon our lives. And he does this by warning the people there gathered in the temple, warning his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. And his warning comes really in two simple ways. First, he tells them, do not do what the Pharisees do. And secondly, do not love what the Pharisees love. So first, do not do what the Pharisees do. Jesus, as we've seen already, he's, he's soundly defeated every challenger to his authority uh, in the temple. He's answered every hostile trap question that has come at him with the wisdom and the grace and the truth of heaven. And Jesus now turns to the crowds including his own disciples. And he begins in verse 2 saying that the scribes and the Pharisees, they do sit upon the seat of Moses. And for that reason, you, you ought to do and observe what they say, but don't do the works they do. And you read that and you say, well, that seems kind of confusing, Jesus. It's, it, it seems kind of cryptic. What are you telling us here? I mean, why are you telling us to do and observe whatever they say, to practice and to keep it, but then not to do their works? It it seems kind of contradictory, especially considering what you've already told us, Jesus, about the scribes and Pharisees. Back in Matthew 16, he said, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew 5.20, he said, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then going forward, even in Matthew, especially in chapter 23, we see stinging judgment after stinging judgment against the scribes and Pharisees. He calls them repeatedly hypocrites. He says they are blind guides in verse 16. Uh, he, he calls out their greed and their self-indulgence in verse 25. And it just seems like then when he says do and observe what they say to be very confusing. Why would we do that? If they're a bunch of hypocrites, of prideful, blind guides. Well, to understand the point he's making here, we need to look again at this little phrase, the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. What is the seat of Moses? Well, it's not a literal seat. There was no seat in the temple in Jerusalem. They said, this is Moses' seat. Rather, it's a figurative expression concerning the law of God, the law that God handed down on Sinai to Moses. And specifically, as a seat, it speaks of the authority of the teachers of God's law. In the ancient world, teachers 
did not stand to teach their students. Instead, they would sit on a chair or a stool, and their students or their disciples would sit at their feet and learn. And and uh, this helped reinforce the idea of authority upon the part of the church teachers. They were talking about it as authoritative people on a particular subject. And we see this play out even in Matthew's gospel with Christ. If we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, he goes up to the mountain and he sits down to teach the crowds because he is one with authority. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so he speaks with the authority of heaven. So when Jesus says here in our text that the scribes and Pharisees sit upon the seat of Moses, he is recognizing that they have a position of official authority to teach the people the law of God. And inasmuch as they actually teach God's law, then the people should listen. They should keep God's law regardless of who declares it. I mean, truth is truth. God's word is God's word, no matter how corrupt and twisted the mouth is that actually utters it. And so, Jesus' instructions here make it clear that while the uh, Pharisees uh, have proclaimed God's law, they haven't practiced it themselves. And thus he says, don't do their works. When they tell you this is God's word and they read straight from the law, yeah, listen. But then look at their lives. They preach but they do not practice, he says. You know, false religions, fraudulent gospels, they will often offer some measure of truth. There's something you hear and you say, well, yeah, that's true, that's right. Not everything the Pharisees taught was a lie, but the proof that they did proclaim, they would twist And they would use it to veil their own self-interest, their own self-love, the pride within their hearts. And so Jesus warns his disciples, do not do what the Pharisees do. And what did they do? Well, he tells us they tie heavy burdens that are hard to bear upon people's shoulders. Burdens so heavy that they are unwilling to even move a little finger to help lighten the load. The picture, of course, he has in mind is is that of a a donkey that was used to transport things in the time. These were like the semi-trucks of the day. And the idea is that of a, a load that is so heavy on the back of the donkey that the animal can't even walk and he is crushed beneath it as it bears down upon him. Now, there is some sense where the actual law of God does burden us. Because we read it and it reveals to us His absolute holiness and exposes our own sinfulness and how we have failed to keep His law even in the smallest part. And we thus need His mercy and His forgiveness and His grace. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what gives us conviction of sin is not the number of sins we have committed. It is the sight of the holiness of God and that holiness we see in His law. And that burdens us with with the guilt of our sin so that we might run to Christ and know His mercy and that we are forgiven of our law-breaking in Him. That was the point of the law as it was given even in that old administration of God's covenant of grace. It was to 
expose the people that, hey, you're not going to be able to keep my covenant. Go ahead and try, but you will break it. You will fail it. And even as they did, they were given ceremonial laws of worship. And those laws preached the gospel through the worship of the sacrifices in the temple. It pointed them to the promise that there is forgiveness at the hand of God, that He would be sending one, His own Son, the Messiah, to give Himself for His people and be that final and ultimate sacrifice so that in Him they might know God forever. So the moral law of God revealed His will to His own covenant people and the fact that they often failed to keep it and thus they needed the constant renewal and revival in their hearts, being reminded of the promises that He had made to them through His faithful love, through the means of worship that He gave them. And so, when the Pharisees actually led the people in that direction, they were right. They were saying, you shall have no other gods before me. They were right. You shall not uh, make any graven image. The people ought to listen and do that. But the Pharisees would confuse that law and then burden the people in two ways. They would confuse and hide God's actual law with the laws of men. In the Jewish Talmud, there were over 600 additional rules that people were expected to follow if they truly wanted to observe God's law and glorify Him. And the Talmud, it wasn't an exposition of God's law based upon His actual word to His people. Rather, it was the private interpretation of the Pharisees. It was a law of human invention. Do this, this, and this, and don't do these things. And then you will be a good Jewish person and and you will be right in God's eyes. It was a a standard of piety designed by humans. And it was regulated everything the people had to do from how they would cook their food and wash their dishes uh, to what kind of clothes they would wear. And these additional laws, they, they rob people of any joy of serving God. For they lived in constant fear that they were somehow breaking one of them. And under his judgment, they were burdened. They were being crushed by a human idea of righteousness. And Jesus says that the Pharisees wouldn't even move a finger to help lighten that load or help carry that load. In fact, they wouldn't observe these things themselves. But they expected others to do it. They would give these laws to the people, but they would give them no means of coping with them. When they did expound upon the actual law of God, they'd leave out His forgiveness and His mercy in His grace. You know, God's law without His grace is an incomplete gospel. It's cruel. It only burdens a person under the load of their sin. That's one of the reasons we have the reading of God's Word before our confession and the declaration of pardon in our worship. Because as we hear His Word, we certainly feel the burden of our sin. And so we confess that, and then we hear the forgiveness. We hear the grace of the Gospel. But the Pharisees and scribes, they would not do that. 
They'd burden the people and crush them down, and they even created a gospel of their own making. It was an ascetic gospel rooted in their self-righteous pride. Jesus says in verse 5, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So, what's he talking about here? Well, a phylactery was a small leather box, and uh, it would be bound with leather strips to the left arm or the forehead, and in that box would be copies of parts of God's Word, uh, maybe the Ten Commandments, something like that. Uh, the Shema, you shall have, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It may have been kept in that little box. It was a practice they came up with uh, by means of uh, extra-literal interpretation of Deuteronomy 6 and 11. And there, in those texts, God speaks of loving and knowing His law so well that uh, it is bound to the hand and between the eyes. And it's probably not meant as a literal thing at all, but it was meant to, to love that law because it revealed God and His covenant love to His people. The scribes and the Pharisees, they failed to see the truth of what God was getting at in those texts. And so they focused on these outward displays, these phylacteries, rather than the inward expression of devotion in their heart. And they made these phylacteries excessively large. They hoped to convince the people of, look how much I love God's law. I'm wearing this huge phylactery on my head and my arm. And the fringes of the garment were all used for the same purpose. Uh, again, the, the fringes of the garments come from the worship of the old administration of God's covenant of grace, as seen in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22. And we see that the purpose of the tassels on the fringes of the garment were uh, designed to remind the people that they are bound to the Lord. And the Pharisees, though, would make these very ornate. They would extend them out long, again, trying to say to people, look how devoted I am to God. The interesting thing is, when you consider what the Pharisees were doing, you can look at, basically, other forms of human expressions of religion, and and people do the same thing. They show these outward acts to Uh, to display their ascetic religion. And definitely not talking about the Catholic Church or anything like that in particular, but think about it. The hashtag has become the phylactery of the secular pop religion, right? And and, and our postings... uh, to try to identify with, with certain causes. They're like the enlarged fringes on our garments. We want people to notice that, hey, we're about this cause. We're about this idea. We want to be people to notice us and our a piety or our love for others. And at its very heart, if you boil it down, a lot of times it's not about a cause even that might be a good cause. It's about... Hey, look at me. I'm, I'm supporting something good here. We want to be accepted and thought of as loving and caring individuals. And so we identify with what the world tells us is in vogue. 
They invoke means of, of communicating compassion to others. And sometimes, sometimes that means that uh, we're willing to abandon what God actually says to listen to a law of the world that is completely contrary to His righteous ways. But nevertheless, the, the outward displays of, of piety, they simply appeal to our pride, our love of ourselves, just as it did in the case of the Pharisees. So Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do what the Pharisees do. And then don't love what the Pharisees love. Well, what did the Pharisees love? Verses 6 through 7, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They love those places of honor, that the special status and esteem that they had from others. They wanted to feel important. They desired to be seen as people of influence, people of power. And this love for position and honor plays out in three areas of their lives. First, they sought social honor. He says at the banquets, they want to sit at the best seats, the, the proverbial head of the table. They wanted to be seen by others. They want to be the life of the party, the one everybody else wanted to be around, the one everybody else wanted to talk to. I imagine that if the scribes and Pharisees were around today, they'd be the ones that were fishing for the likes on their Facebook post or more followers on Instagram and Twitter. Hey, look at me. Look at me. Look what I am doing. Secondly, they, they wanted honor in their religious life. We've already seen they had these phylacteries, the excessive fringes on their garment, but Jesus adds they loved the best seats in the synagogues. And uh, we've unearthed through archaeological research Jewish, ancient Jewish synagogues, and there were special seats at the very front uh, where the teachers of the law would sit and face the congregation to, to give them instruction. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they wanted those. They desired them. They would do whatever they could to sit in those seats. And the issue wasn't so much the arrangement of the furniture in the synagogue, but it was the attitude of their hearts. They wanted to be noticed as the most religious, the most righteous amongst the people. They wanted the people's praise. But sadly, the history of the church, as we know well, is full of those who have sought positions of power and influence simply to build their own kingdom, their own ego. You see that even to this day. Third, Jesus tells us that the scribes and Pharisees sought greetings of honor in the marketplace. They loved to be called, hey, rabbi, hey, rabbi. The adulation of the people. I'm sure most of you have seen Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Um, and I kind of imagine this idea of wanting the greetings of the people uh, similar to what you see with Gaston when you're first introduced to him. They sing a song about him, right? And uh, everybody's just singing his praises, of course, except for Bell. And, uh, you know, he thinks that he's this great, powerful uh, specimen of a man, and he enjoys the praise of the villagers. You kind of think that's how the Pharisees were here. They wanted a Disney song sung about them 
as they pass through the marketplace. They seek the title rabbi, which literally means my great one. And it wasn't a bad position necessarily. Rabbis did teach the people. But again, it was the desire of their heart. They wanted to be the great one. And when you boil it all down, what we see that the Pharisees love is that they love their own glory more than the glory of God. You see, the problem Jesus is addressing isn't the position or the title of rabbi, teachers of the law. It wasn't the fact that they were scribes. He isn't condemning even the existence of positions of honor or offices per se. In fact, God has ordained offices within the various structures of society for the the good function of communities and the flourishing of humanity. He, He ordains civil magistrates to uphold good order and lawful peace. He appoints and calls leaders to his church, pastors and elders to to shepherd and serve and, and minister to his people. But the issue here is that the Pharisees were seeking those things because they loved the praise it brought them, not the praise of God that those positions were created to point one to. They loved their own glory more than the glory of God. They were more concerned with their own honor than the honor of God Almighty. And there is where you begin to see the connection between pride and and idolatry, pride and false worship. Pride leads us to worship ourselves instead of worshiping God. It tells us that we are the most important thing in this world and we just need to find our authentic self and we will have peace in our hearts. And in the exaltation of ourselves, Our sinfulness becomes our own identity rather than the identity of Christ. We become a savior to ourselves, our own God. And that, brothers and sisters, is why pride is so dangerous and why Jesus tells us, don't walk down that path of rebellion. Do not do what the Pharisees do. Do not love what the Pharisees love. Pride will turn you into a Pharisee if you continue to follow it. But Jesus doesn't just stop with a warning. In fact, if Jesus only warned us and said, don't do what the Pharisees do, don't do, love what they love, he would really be no different than the Pharisees. He would be laying upon us a heavy burden because when we look into our lives, we say, I am a prideful person. It lies within the heart of my old nature as a human. I mean, we are all one step away from putting on some sort of phylactery or ornate tassel. But Jesus, thanks be to God, is no Pharisee. He is the King of grace. And he leaves us with one final thing. He says here, don't do what the Pharisees do. Do not love what the Pharisees love. But rest in the humility of the gospel. Beginning in verse 8, Jesus explains how the gospel of his kingdom contrasts the pride of the kingdom of this world by creating a community where true, grace-driven and created humility flourishes. 
He says, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Once again, Jesus isn't rejecting these titles in offices here. After all, Jesus will appoint uh, people, these men, to be his apostles, to, to lead his church. Paul himself, uh, in verse Timothy 2.7, calls himself a teacher, an instructor of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Uh, and in Ephesians 4, we find that Christ gives to his church apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And these pastors and teaching elders equip the church for the, the work of the ministry. And even in the scriptures, we find the title Father used to speak of spiritual fathers in our lives. So it's not the title that's the problem. Again, it's the seeking after these things for my own sake, my own glory. He's telling us to reject the pursuit of those things, the pursuit of prestige and privilege, and instead embrace the humility of the gospel. For it is the gospel that remedies the pride in our hearts with true humility. And it does that because it creates true equality. There's something that's a buzzword that people want. They want equality. It only exists within the kingdom of Christ through the gospel. You see, Jesus told his disciples, don't call yourself a rabbi, a great one. For you are all brothers. And sisters, you are all the same. You are all sinners saved by the same grace of God. We all stand guilty before him and are in need of his mercy and pardoning. And so we should never lord over others thinking we are more spiritual or better than they. But to consider them our brothers and sisters to unite with them and help them to grow in their faith. And secondly, we see here that the gospel creates this real equality by establishing true unity. That unity comes from all believers being under one Father, as Jesus speaks here. We see that also in John 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he he prays there that his disciples, that you and I, would be one just as he and the Father are one. He prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, and that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and And love them even as you loved me. Perfectly one. That's the unity of the gospel. And that unity is further expressed by the reality that as Christians, we live under the banner of no one but Christ alone. He is the only true head of his church. So Jesus says in our text here, you have one instructor, the Christ. Our doctrine is not of human origin. We we don't practice our faith based upon the commandments of men, but the commandments of our heavenly King. And while Jesus does appoint to His church ministers who are supposed to be faithful to Him and proclaim 
His word and administer His sacraments, they do so with the authority of Christ. It is not their authority, for it is Christ's word and Christ's sacraments that they proclaim and administer. See, pride can't exist in this place where we have unity with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Thus, the gospel is the answer to the very pride within our own hearts. You see, to worship God as we do every Lord's Day, to worship Him, we must be lifted up to Him, for He is high and exalted and lifted up. But we need someone to do that for us. We need Christ. We need Him to come down. He who humbled Himself to condescend, take us as we come to Him in humility and faith and repentance and lift us up to Himself. That's what Jesus is talking about there in verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself, whoever says, I can do this, look at my phylactery, look at my fringes, he will be humbled because he's now not worshiping the God of heaven. He's worshiping himself. But whoever humbles himself who says, no, I cannot get to the heights of my God lest someone brings me there. He that humbles himself in faith and repentance, what happens? He is exalted. He will be lifted up to heaven by Christ alone. See, the gospel is one of humility. And we see in that this all-important aspect that Jesus is the perfect example of humility that defeats our pride. I mean, it is ultimately the humility of Christ that overcomes the pride in our hearts. Paul talks about it in that text in Philippians 2, for which we are also familiar, where he says, "...have this mind among yourselves." which is yours, this is the humility, in Christ Jesus. So being united to Him. Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. How? By taking on the form of a servant. Becoming a human. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the death on a cross. Therefore, now what? Since He has humbled Himself, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, now what? Every knee should bow, should humble themselves in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you see the connection? Christ humbled Himself so that when we humble ourselves before Him, He can lift us up with Himself to the presence of God and we can enjoy His blessings forever. Christ was willing to leave the glories of heaven to be made fully human, to suffer all the infirmities and pains which we suffer, to become a humble servant, to die on a cruel cross, the death of criminals, though He had never sinned, And having done all that, He is now exalted above all other names, having risen and ascended 
Thus all of us should come in humility and bow our knees before him so that we too might be lifted up and enjoy our God forever. You see, it has to be Christ that does that. It has to be. We could not do it ourselves. After all, we struggle with our own pride. I I started this morning by mentioning Eustace and the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And when he was transformed into that dragon as a reflection of the pride within his heart, he felt that he needed to be transformed back to a boy. He was convicted by that. He was troubled that he was now this horrible dragon. And he is delivered. He's delivered from that fate by Aslan the lion, who, of course, in Lewis's allegory, represents Christ. But first, Eustace tries to save himself. He starts clawing at the scales that are on him, the pride that is there. And as he rips off one layer of scales, there's just another one that is there. And he's desperate. He cannot get them off. And so Aslan, the lion, comes to Eustace and he says, you're going to have to let me undress you. And so Eustace, as he describes this encounter with Aslan, he says, I lay flat down on my back. He humbles himself. And I let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought he had gone right into my heart. But the end result is is that Eustace is restored. He's, He's made a boy again. He's made whole. The scales of his pride are torn away by the grace and the power of the lion. And Jesus is the lion of Judah. When we humble ourselves before him as our king, as we humble ourselves to him, he will pull away those scales of pride by his grace. He laid himself down in humility So that if you would lay yourself down before him in humility, you might be exalted with him. It seems so backwards, this idea. It seems so upside down, this kingdom of Christ, that it is the humble, those who fall before the king in humility, are the ones who are lifted up and made great. Because Christ is a great Savior. And so let us do that. Let us endeavor as God's people to lay ourselves down, not doing what the Pharisees do, not loving what they love, but turning from our pride in humble repentance and reliance on the gospel of Christ to make us new, to make us what he has called us to be in him by his grace alone. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. We're thankful that Christ is this great king who has come and laid himself down, humbled himself in the most amazing of manners to die for us so that he might redeem us, so that he might lift us up to you when we but in simple faith and repentance fall at his feet. Father, remind us of these great promises of your gospel once again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.